0: Harrison Davis, one of the first four Black football players at UVA. He was the first Black quarterback at UVA, the second Black quarterback in the ACC. And after his time at UVA, he went on to play for the San Diego Chargers in the NFL. To be the first Black quarterback at UVA, the second Black quarterback in the ACC, it was not only uh, you know amazing and impressive and successful, it was also dangerous. Uh, Davis received hate mail from the KKK, threats to himself and to his family. He was on the receiving end of multiple flagrant tackles uh, and dirty hits. And in one particular game against the University of South Carolina, uh, he actually ends the game with two dislocated shoulders, uh, unable to raise uh, both of his arms above his head. But the following game uh, is against a rival, Virginia Tech, Uh, And so he's still chosen as the starting quarterback for that next week's game. Uh, Now that game uh, is off to a rough start. Uh, Davis throws two interceptions, both of which are converted to touchdowns. And so he receives this chorus of boos and uh, racial slurs from the crowd, from the home crowd, uh, from his peers and fellow students. Uh, So he receives this chorus of blues and racial slurs, and when he's about to come back onto the field, now down 14-0, he comes onto the field uh, and approaches the crowd, approaches the home section of the crowd, and he flicks them all off, showing them the middle finger. And then he goes on to lead the team to victory in this game. And this single moment, this kind of just awesome act of defiance and resistance, Uh, proves to be just as important as every bit of the, the trailblazer that he is.
1: This is Still We Rise, the podcast that unites
2: students, administrators, and community members to explore the history and implications of racial injustice at UVA.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Victoria, and I am a first-year master's student at UVA. My name is Panay,
2: and I am studying in the College of Arts and Sciences, and we are excited to have all of you listening to us.
1: Race factors into the entire system of collegiate athletics, from what athletes are able to take out of their academic experience to how they perceive broader issues of racial injustice.
3: Still We Rise is a Reflections original podcast with support from the UVA Democracy Initiative's Memory Project. We are proud to represent Reflections' oral history through this thematic exploration of race, equity, and equality at our institution. Each episode is produced by UVA students.
1: But we want to preface this episode by noting that we don't have as much information about Black, non male identifying athletes, and in addition, Um, When we refer to male identifying and male, we are including both cisgender and transgender men in our analysis, so we don't have as much information, um, but we also recognize that their experiences are equally and also more extremely important, and so we wanted to create ways for these athletes to share their stories as well, and there will be more on that later.
2: To really understand athletics at UVA, we have to go back before Harrison Davis to 1957 to the story of a man named Ray Dennison and the origination of the term student-athlete. You'll support the Constitution, the United States will help you God. Thank you. Please be seated.
3: Ray Dennison was an offensive lineman for Fort Lewis A and M, and as he was competing, he suffered a head injury that ended up shattering his skull, and he he ended up dying because of this injury.
1: Molly Harry is a PhD student and professor at UVA who researches collegiate athletics. Dennison's widow filed for death benefits
3: since her husband's death was the result of what she and her legal team perceived. Um, him being an employee of the institution. So the NCAA in Fort Lewis AM said, no, 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 uh, hold up here. We're going to take you to court. And I believe this is one of the most important court cases in athletics, um, intercollegiate athletics history. Um, and this is where the NCAA creates and introduces this term student athlete to its membership institutions and to the public at large. The NCAA essentially argued. Dennison was a student athlete and therefore could not be an employee of the institution at the same time. So thus, as a student and not as an employee, uh, the widow wasn't eligible for benefits of any kind um, as the result of his death. So the court ends up agreeing with the NCAA and the institution, and this sort of solidifies the term student athlete, the notion of amateurism and their relationship with college athletics um, up into this point in time
1: we can't talk about this without talking about race. Like this term was created to minimize their ability. And also we know that black men are overrepresented in revenue generating sports. Mm -hmm. We're talking about football, basketball. The ones who could really profit off of, say, their name, image, and likeness and really like make a name for themselves, they're not able to because of this restriction.
2: That's true and I think I don't think you can think about this without connecting it to the other legacies of white institutional exploitation, especially on black people more specifically in a historical sense, and of course UVA does not exist outside of that. It is a PD- PWI, it generates a lot of revenue especially from these revenue generating sports. Um, And the athletes are the main ones bringing this in. And those athletes happen to be predominantly black.
3: What's really challenging about this term, and it's constantly used to reflect the dual roles of athletes as both student and athletes. um, But it was never created or intended for that purpose, it was created to be an oppressive term to keep athletes in their place and prevent payment. And this is magnified today because the majority of athletes who are prevented for, from compensation are black male revenue generating athletes. So I think today that's where that term has shifted. Um, and we tend to forget about its a, its more um, oppressive racialized roots, if you will.
2: With that, thinking about the black person, The black body to use that sort of term, even though, of course, we're not just bodies, but thinking about how in the eyes of like a white institution, you are a source of revenue in a lot of ways and you may not be getting the pay that you deserve. And so I think it's important that we we think about that and how it relates to the black student athlete experience, especially in these revenue generating sports.
1: Exactly. And that's (laughs) capitalism. It's it's a lot to like deal with. And this is an institutional setup within the structure of collegiate athletics. Like this was designed to be this way.
2: It's true. And I think the sort of systematic element of it is reflected in statistics. If you just look at them, like the percentage of black men in most student bodies is low, especially at PWIs, but the percentage participating in revenue-generating sports is extremely high. And so again, speaking to this disproportionate rate, despite this massive overrepresentation of Black athletes in these sports, a lot of them are not graduating from these institutions and oftentimes are far less educated than their peers once they leave college. And so that's like at the school level, but then also looking at the NCAA which is a purely capitalist system, a lot of their executives profit from the the labor of these student-athletes, even though it's not being deemed as such because of the student-athlete label.
1: Thinking about this, we have to ask ourselves, you know, is it worth it? Like, I mm. mean, some people say, you know, well, if they get a free ride to college, they get all of these, you know, perks and fame and all that, but is it worth it?
4: My whole academic schedule revolves around my athletic schedule, what I'm available to do, and so um, there's a lot of majors, not necessarily for me personally, that I'm interested in, but there are a lot of majors that we can't necessarily take because we can't take classes before 11 a.m. and um, we can't really have internships, externships, stuff like that, outside of uh, outside of the season because we have to be here all year round.
1: This is Charles Snowden, a senior outside linebacker at UVA. There's clearly an enormous amount of time and effort
2: that goes into the development of these athletes' skills, and yet their efforts are seen as lesser than another class or endeavor.
4: Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think that, one, um, football in itself is another class, and so if I started speaking football to a lot of people, they wouldn't understand a single thing about it. And so that right there is a lot to learn, a lot to memorize, and so that is brain power right there. And also just, I mean, uh, athletes are just really coachable,
1: and here's Molly again. I think,
3: and this is sort a fairly controversial opinion, but we can develop a curriculum or a major in athletics and really add more academic components to this experience. I think it's only going to heighten athletes' academic and athletic performance and really just show people that it can be a viable educational avenue uh, many go on and and compare athletics to music students and music majors So why can they practice a craft that is performance based and receive academic credit and, and whatnot for that but athletes cannot why is running a route and knowing x's and o's seen as a detractor or not educational when reading music is
1: when i first heard Molly talk about how music majors are treated differently from athletes mm-hmm. that literally reminds like I was a marching band nerd all through high school loved bands and I committed everything to it but it's so true like why is why are there no majors in like athletics
2: I don't know people somehow that's sort of attributed to like some like intellectual endeavor or like some, I feel like in a lot of ways it's like a class marker to do that. Whereas I feel like a lot of sports, especially revenue generating ones aren't given that same level of status. And so you don't have like academic institutions like UVA taking the time to really develop a curriculum out of them. Rather you just have the like collegiate athlete experience bisected between their athletic experience, and then having to be a student too, which tends to fall by the wayside, as we saw with what Charles was just saying. I don't know. I think it just goes to show that it it is a completely developed and very like strategically thought out process. A lot of people don't approach it in that way because it's not a more traditional intellectual strategic craft.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really frustrating that academia in general doesn't recognize the inherent value of athletics as an intellectual, physical. It's like all of these things that are combined into this one awesome craft that people are really talented in. And let's not overlook the fact that a lot of these students may never get the experience to have an internship, get a job, or do even certain majors just because of their participation in their sports. We are denying our athletes a significant portion of what you gain in college. And it also says a lot that I had never even thought about athletics in that way until Molly talked Mm -hmm. about it. Like our minds are so... They're so conditioned to believe like in the system that's already there that we could I couldn't even imagine it.
2: Thinking about that, this then begs the question of what actually does qualify as an area of expertise in the academic world? Like, where do we come up with this criteria? Um, who gets to determine what it is? Who got us sort of thinking about this idea that crafts involving the body in a more like physical embodied sense are superior in a sense to those that are more conventionally like intellectual or philosophical or whatever, because I do think that that is a significant part of why people don't think about athletics and the student athlete experience more specifically in that sort of way.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's about power and who has the power to influence and to define what is intellectual and what is seen as valuable. Mm-hmm.
2: So, if you think about the overrepresentation of Black students in revenue generating sports, then possibly developing an academic curriculum that has both usable and marketable skills that can help them post graduation could probably go a really long way in terms of helping Black student athletes succeed after they graduate, of course,
1: even if they don't go pro. And there's someone at UVA who's been thinking about this a lot
5: it's still very much a dysfunctional narrative that plays out in very dangerous and slippery ways, particularly when I think of the youth who pursue that and the large percentage of such youth that will never attain that yet still find themselves exploited by that and uh, and, and, and their educational attainment process in many ways hampered by it.
2: Professor Harris studies and works to improve collegiate athlete mental health, focusing more specifically on Black male athletes.
5: Recognizing the the shoes that are are being walked in every day by student athletes, it's not easy. Um, And the very thing that might have them to thrive in their athletic arena, like the resilience, the drive, the perseverance, um, those can be the very same things that can work against them in the thriving of their mental health.
1: Professor Harris created the MP3 program, which is designed to improve high school athletes' mental health and their own self-image and self-efficacy.
5: So MP3 started by me going to local schools and connecting and collaborating in such a way that I was running groups, co-leading groups with counselors. Um, And those groups were comprised of Predominantly black male student athletes who, uh, like my former self, not exactly like me, obviously, but who also had incredible potential, leadership potential, but were not necessarily tapping in that potential uh, in the ways that they could. The primary goal of MP3 is to see these young men thrive in and out of sport. So, again, it's not a discouragement from sports, it's far from that. It's actually heightening the awareness of the skills that are being employed in these spaces, but somehow missing in these other spaces and and helping them see those connections and build their sense of self-efficacy toward that end.
2: I think it's about having a more holistic and variable sense of self where like all your eggs aren't just in one basket, that being like football, for example. You have different hobbies, different interests, different areas of self-worth that all come together to make you. And so you're not completely down or super hard on yourself if you like don't perform well on the field or at practice or something like that. But I don't think we usually think about that in terms of mental health, because for a lot of people, that isn't the center of their universe. Um, but it is important, especially thinking about how much emphasis is placed on perfection Mm -hmm. Uh, in our society and how much emphasis is placed on sort of leveling up all the
6: time.
1: Because after all, what happens when your career ends?
6: You know, at some point, the air is going to come out of the football and we're all going to stop playing. And I think that making sure they understand what's important and being a student athlete is important because when your football days are done, you need something to fall back on. And that was one of the hardest lessons that I learned and I would probably encourage young young student-athletes is find something that you are interested in and not just something that you can graduate in. I'm Marcus Higgins. I coach the wide receivers at the University of Virginia, and I am a fellow Wahoo, graduate of 2006. And there was a probably about a year where I was really depressed of, I didn't know who I was or what I was good at because I had given football almost... 22 years of my life and that's all my life really had been was football 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 you graduate go to the nfl football 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 and then you go to practice one day and you get hurt and you never play again and then it's like all right well what else are you good at i had no idea and so um i wouldn't want any other person to have to go through that i would want for them to have a great idea of who they are without football and what they're really interested in outside of football. So when that day does come, the transition is a lot smoother and there's not this huge gap of not knowing who they are, what they're good at and how they're gonna navigate through life, trying to figure out what's next for them, so.
1: Do you feel as though you are prepared to enter a professional world outside of um, football?
4: Um, I'm not really sure because I don't really know what the professional world outside of football looks like.
2: Here's Charles again, the athlete on the UVA football team.
4: And so um, I don't think I know how to sit down and work an Excel spreadsheet or I don't think I know how to, I don't know, whatever people do in the professional world yet. But I think I do know how to work within a team. I think I do know how to figure out hard things.
1: history of the term student-athlete and the academic implications of racism in collegiate athletics are only the first part of this story. In the second part, we'll talk about how social justice spills into athletics and the implications of athletes using their platforms for change.
3: That's it for this episode, but we'd love to keep the conversation going. For more information on our podcast or to share your thoughts, visit www.reflectionsoralhistory.com slash rise. Like us on Facebook at Reflections UVA and follow us on Twitter at Rise UVA. You can also find all of our links below. Give us a follow and share with your friends.